Hey everyone, it's me. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all staying safe, staying healthy, staying alive. Hope you're all doing well. I haven't had to say, hey, hope your commute's going well for a while, which is nice. I hope no one's having to commute unless you want to commute. And just, just stay safe out there, everyone. For the month of June, we're going to be talking about Algernon Blackwood, and also, we're also going to be talking about Glacky for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Stay with us, and also remember that this show is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Highland Cow Slipper. You know, it's, it's, it's getting warm out, but if you're like me, can't sleep having problems, wandering around the house, middle of the night, cleaning. Yeah, linoleum's cold, hardwood floors are cold, ceramics cold, tiles cold. You know what's not cold? Bunny slippers, Highland Cow slippers. Look cool, like uh, what, 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 Chris Knight from Real Genius with Val Kilmer. Get some cool bunny slippers and then head on over to founditemclothing.com and get one of those cool shirts that he wears. I Heart Toxic Waste or Surf Nicaragua or any of those shirts that, I don't know, maybe they're problematic nowadays. I, I, I don't remember what they all are. And you know what? If there was something that you thought was funny before that it's now problematic and you've decided to change your mind about whether or not you think it's problematic or not, you know, you you no longer think that certain jokes in Revenge of the Nerds are funny. Good for you. That's called growth, and it's okay. You're not a you're not a hypocrite if you change your mind. If that you decide that past beliefs aren't what they are, and that you're smarter about it. Remember to use your voice. Remember to vote. Remember to help people who need help. Don't. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't feel like it's my job to tell people what to do. I don't feel like it's my job to. But oh man, I, I sure feel responsible if I don't. I sure feel like I could have said something. Someone could have learned something, and whatever. I feel like I've been bullied in the past by people who don't want to hear what I have to say or don't like what I have to say. And those people can pretty much go away. I don't want them listening to my show. I don't want them writing in. Stay safe, and check the show notes for how you can help people. And here's some Algernon Blackwood, Four Weird Tales for you. Here we go. Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood. Sand, Chapter One. As Felix Henriot came through the streets that January night, the fog was stifling. But when he reached his little flat upon the top floor, there came a sound of wind. Wind was stirring about the world. It blew against his windows, but at first so faintly that he hardly noticed it. Then, with an abrupt rise and fall like a wailing voice that sought to claim attention, it called him. He peered through the window into the blurred darkness, listening. There is no cry in the world like that of the homeless wind. A vague excitement, scarcely to be analysed, ran through his blood. The curtain of fog waved momentarily aside. Henriot fancied a star peeped down at him. It will change things a bit at last, he sighed, settling back into his chair. It will bring movement. Already something in himself had changed. A restlessness as that of wandering wind woke in his heart. The desire to be off and away. Other things could rouse this wildness too. Falling water, the singing of a bird, an odour of wood-fire a glimpse of winding road, but the cry of the wind, always searching, questioning, travelling the world's great routes, remained ever the master touch. High longing took his mood in hand. Mid seven millions he felt suddenly lonely. I will arise and go now, for always night and day I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore, while I stand on the roadway or in the pavement's grey. I hear it in the deep heart's call. He murmured the words over softly to himself. The emotion that produced Innisfree passed strongly through him. He too would be over the hills and far away. He craved movement, change, adventure. 
somewhere far from shops and crowds and motor buses. For a week the fog had stifled London. This wind brought life. Where should he go? Desire was long, his purse was short. He glanced at his books, letters, newspapers. They had no interest now. Instead he listened. The panorama of other journeys rolled in colour through the little room, flying on one another's heels. Henriot enjoyed this remembered essence of his travels more than the travels themselves. The crying wind brought so many voices, all of them seductive. There was a soft crashing of waves upon the black seashores, where the huge carcasses beckoned in the sky beyond. A rustling in the umbrella pines and cactus at Marseille, whence magic steamers start about the world like flying dreams. He heard the plash of fountains upon Mount Ida's slopes, and the whisper of the tamarisk on Marathon. It was dawn once more upon the Ionian Sea, and he smelt the perfume of the Kaiklades. Blue-veiled islands melted in the sunshine, and across the dewy lawns of temper moistened by the spray of many waterfalls, he saw, great heavens above, the dancing of white forms, or was it only the mist the sunshine painted against Pelion? I thought among the lawns together we wandered underneath the young grey dawn, and multitudes of dense white fleecy clouds shepherded by the slow, unwilling wind. And then, into his stuffy room, slipped the singing perfume of a wallflower on a ruined tower, and with it the sweetness of hot ivy. He heard the yellow bees and the ivy bloom. Wind whipped over the open hills, this very wind that laboured drearily through the London fog. And he was caught. The darkness melted from the city. The fog whisked off into an azure sky. The roar of traffic turned into the booming of the sea. There was a whistling among cordage, and the floor swayed to and fro. He saw a sailor touch his cap and pocket the two-franc piece. The siren hooted. Ominous sound that had started him on many a journey of adventure. And the roar of London became mere insignificant clatter of a child's toy carriages. He loved that siren's call. There was something deep and pitiless in it. It drew the wanderers forth from cities everywhere. Leave your known world behind you, and come with me for better or for worse. The anchor is up. It is too late to change, only beware. You shall know curious things, and alone. Henriot stirred uneasily in his chair. He turned with a sudden energy to the shelf of guidebooks, maps, and timetables, possessions he most valued in the whole room. He was a happy-go-lucky, adventure-loving soul, careless of common standards, a thirst ever for the new and strange. "'That's the best of having a cheap flat,' he laughed. "'And no ties in the world. I can turn the key and disappear. No one cares or knows. No one but the thieving caretaker, and he's long ago found out that there's nothing here worth taking.' There followed, then, no lengthy indecision. Preparation was even shorter still. He was always ready for a move and his sojourn in cities was but breathing space while he gathered pennies for further wanderings. An enormous kit-bag, sack-shaped, very worn and dirty, emerged speedily from the bottom of a cupboard in the wall. It was of limitless capacity. The key and padlock rattled in its depths. Cigarette ashes covered everything while he stuffed it full of ancient, indescribable garments. And his voice, singing of those yellow bees and the ivy bloom, mingled with the crying of the rising wind about his windows. His restlessness had disappeared by magic. This time, however, there could be no haunted Pelion, nor shady groves of temper, for he lived in sophisticated times when money markets regulated movement sternly. Travelling was only for the rich, mere wanderers must pig it. He remembered instead an opportune invitation to the desert. Objective invitation, his genial hosts had called it, knowing his hatred of convention and Halloween danced into letters of brilliance upon the inner map of his mind. For Egypt had ever held his spirit in thrall, though as yet he had tried in vain to touch the great buried soul of her. The excavators, the Egyptologists, the archaeologists most of all, plastered her grey ancient face with labels like hotel advertisements on travellers' portmanteau. They told where she had come from last, but nothing of what she dreamed and thought and loved, 
The heart of Egypt lay beneath the sand, and the trifling robbery of little details that poked forth from tombs and temples brought no true revelation of her stupendous spiritual splendour. Henriot in his youth had searched and dived among what material he could find, believing once, or half-believing, that the ceremonial of that ancient system veiled a weight of symbol that was reflected from genuine supersensual knowledge. The rituals, now taken literally and so pityingly explained away, had once been genuine pathways of approach, but never yet, and least of all in his previous visits to Egypt itself, had he discovered one single person worthy of speech who caught at his idea. Curious, they said, then turned away to go on digging in the sand. Sand smothered her world today. Excavators discovered skeletons. Museums everywhere stored them, grinning literal relics that told nothing. But now, while he packed and sang, these hopes of enthusiastic younger days stirred again, because the emotion that gave them birth was real and true in him. Through the morning mists upon the Nile, an old pyramid bowed hugely at him across London roofs. Come, he heard its awful whisper beneath the ceiling. I have things to show you and to tell. He saw the flock of them sailing the desert like a weird, grey, solemn ship that makes no earthly port, and he imagined them as one, multiple expressions of some single, unearthly portent they adumbrated in mighty form, dead symbols of some spiritual conception long vanished from the world. "'I mustn't dream like this,' he laughed, "'or I shall get absent-minded and pack fire-tongs instead of boots. It looks like a jumble sail already.' and he stood on a heap of things to wedge them down still tighter. But the pictures would not cease. He saw the kites circling high in the blue air. A couple of white vultures flapped lazily away over shining miles. Feluca sails, like giant wings emerging from the ground, curved toward him from the Nile. The palm trees dropped long shadows over Memphis. He felt the delicious drenching heat, and the camasin, that overwind from Nubia, brushed his very cheeks. In the little garden, the mishmish was in bloom. He smelt the desert, grey sepulchre of cancelled cycles. The stillness of her interminable reaches dropped down upon old London. The magic of the sand stole round him in its silent-footed tempest. And while he struggled with that strange, capacious sack, the piles of clothing ran into shapes of gleaming Bedouin faces. London garments settled down with the mournful sound of camel's feet, half-dropping wind, half-water flowing underground, sound that old time has brought over into modern life and left a moment for our wonder and perhaps our tears. He rose at length with the excitement of some deep enchantment in his eyes. The thought of Egypt plunged ever so deeply into him, carrying him into depths where he found it difficult to breathe, so strangely far away it seemed, yet undefinably familiar. He lost his way. A touch of fear came with it. A sack like that is the wonder of the world, he laughed again, kicking the unwieldy sausage-shaped monster into a corner of the room, and sitting down to write the thrilling labels, Felix Henriot, Alexandria via Marseille. But his pen blotted the letters. There was sand in it. He rewrote the words. Then he remembered a dozen things he'd left out. Impatiently, yet with confusion somewhere, he stuffed them in. They ran away into shifting heaps. They disappeared. They emerged suddenly again. It was like packing hot, dry-flowing sand. From the pockets of a coat, he had worn it last summer down Dorset Way, out trickled sand. There was sand in his mind and thoughts. And his dreams that night were full of winds. The old, sad winds of Egypt and of moving, sifting sand. Arabs and Afrits danced amazingly together across dunes he could never reach for he could not follow fast enough. Something infinitely older than these ever caught his feet and held him back. A million tiny fingers stung and pricked him. Something flung a veil before his eyes. Once it touched him, his face and hands and neck. "'Stay here with us,' he heard a host of muffled voices crying. But their sound was smothered, buried, rising through the ground. A myriad throats were choked, till at last, with a violent effort, he turned and seized it. And then the thing he grasped at slipped between his fingers and ran easily away. It had a grey and yellow face, and it moved through all its parts. It flowed as water flows, and yet was solid. It was centuries old. He cried out to it, "'Who are you? What is your name? I surely know you.' 
but I have forgotten. And it stopped, turning from far away its great uncovered countenance of nameless colouring. He caught a voice. It rolled and boomed and whispered like the wind. And then he woke with a curious shaking in his heart and a little touch of chilly perspiration on the skin. But the voice seemed in the room still, close beside him. I am the sand, he heard before it died away. And next he realized that the glitter of Paris lay behind him, and a steamer was taking him with much unnecessary motion across a sparkling sea toward Alexandria. Gladly he saw the Riviera fade below the horizon with its hard, bright sunshine, treacherous winds, and its smear of rich, conventional English. All restlessness now had left him. True vagabond still at forty, he felt only the unrest and discomfort of life when caught in the network of routine and rigid streets, no chance of breaking loose. He was off again at last, money scarce enough indeed, but the joy of wandering expressing itself in happy emotions of release. Every warning of calculation was stifled. He thought of the American woman who walked out of her Long Island house one summer's day to look at a passing sail and was gone eight years before she walked in again. Eight years of roving travel. He had always felt respect and admiration for that woman, for Felix Henriot, with his admixture of foreign blood, was philosopher as well as vagabond, a strong poetic and religious strain sometimes breaking out through fissures in his complex nature. He had seen much life and read many books, the passionate desire of youth to solve the world's big riddles had given place to a resignation filled to the brim with wonder. Anything might be true. Nothing surprised him. The most outlandish beliefs, for all he knew, might fringe truth somewhere. He had escaped that cheap cynicism with which disappointed men sued their vanity when they realized that an intelligible explanation of the universe lies beyond their powers. He no longer expected final answers. For him, even the smallest journeys held the spice of some adventure. All minutes were loaded with enticing potentialities, and they shaped for themselves somehow a dramatic form. It's like a story, his friend said when he told his travels. It always was a story. But the adventure that lay waiting for him where the silent streets of little Helouin kissed the great desert's lips was of a different kind to any Henriot had yet encountered. Looking back, he has often asked himself, how in the world can I accept it? And perhaps he never yet has accepted it. It was sand that brought it. For the desert, the stupendous thing that mothers little Helouin produced it. End of chapter one of Sand. Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood. Sand. Chapter two. He slipped through Cairo with the same relief that he left the Riviera, resenting its social vulgarity so close to the imperial aristocracy of the desert. He settled down into the peace of soft and silent little Heluan. The hotel, in which he had a room on the top floor, had been formerly a Kedival palace. It had the air of a palace still. He felt himself in a country house with lofty ceilings, cool and airy corridors, spacious halls. Soft-footed Arabs attended to his wants. White walls let in light and air without a sign of heat. There was a feeling of a large spread tent pitched on the very sand, and the wind that stirred the oleanders in the shady garden also crept in to rustle the palm-leaves of his favourite corner seat. Through the large windows, where once the Kedive held high court, the sunshine blazed upon vistaed leagues of desert, and from his bedroom windows he watched the sun dip into gold and crimson behind the swelling Libyan sands. This side of the pyramids he saw the Nile meander among palm-groves and tilled fields, Across his balcony railings the Egyptian stars trooped down beside his very bed, shaping old constellations for his dreams, while to the south he looked out upon the vast, untamable body of the sands that carpeted the world for thousands of miles toward Upper Egypt, Nubia, and the dread Sahara itself. He wondered again why people thought it necessary to go so far afield to know the desert. Here, within half an hour of Cairo, it lay breathing solemnly at his very doors. 
for little helouan caught thus between the shoulders of the libyan and arabian deserts is utterly sand-haunted the desert lies all around it like a sea henriot felt he never could escape from it as he moved about the island whose coasts are washed with sand down each broad and shining street the two end houses framed a vista of its dim immensity glimpses of shimmering blue or flame-touched purple there were stretches of deep sea green as well far off upon its bosom the streets were open channels of approach and the eye ran down them as along the tube of a telescope laid to catch the incredible distance out of space through them the desert reached in with long thin feelers toward the village its being flooded into helouan and over it past walls and houses churches and hotels the sea of desert pressed in silently with its myriad soft feet of sand it poured in everywhere through crack and slit and cranny these were reminders of possession and ownership and every passing wind that lifted eddies of dust at the street corners were messages from the quiet powerful thing that permitted helouan to lie and dream so peacefully in the sunshine mere artificial oasis its existence was temporary held on lease just for ninety-nine centuries or so this sea idea became insistent for in certain lights and especially in the brief bewildering dusk the desert rose swaying towards the small white houses the waves of it ran for fifty miles without a break it was too deep for foam or surface agitation yet it knew the swell of tides and underneath flowed resolute currents linking distance to the centre these many deserts were really one a storm just retreated had tossed helouan upon the shore and left it there to dry but any morning he would wake to find that it had been carried off again into the depths some fragment at least would disappear the grim moktam hills were rollers that ever threatened to topple down and submerge the sandy bar that men called helouan being soundless and devoid of perfume the desert's message reached him through two senses only sight and touch chiefly of course the former its invasion was concentrated through the eyes and vision thus uncorrected went what pace it pleased the desert played with him sand stole into his being through the eyes and so obsessing was this majesty of its close presence that henriot sometimes wondered how people dared their little social activities within its very sight and hearing how they played golf and tennis upon reclaimed edges of its face picnicked so blithely hard upon its frontiers and danced at night while this stern unfathomable thing lay breathing just beyond the trumpery walls that kept it out the challenge of their shallow admiration seemed presumptuous almost provocative their pursuit of pleasure suggested insolent indifference they ran foolhardy hazards he felt for there was no worship in their vulgar hearts with a mental shudder sometimes he watched the cheap tourist horde go laughing chattering past within view of its ancient half-closed eyes it was like defying deity for to his stirred imagination the sublimity of the desert dwarfed humanity these people had been wiser to choose another place for the flaunting of their tawdry insignificance any minute this wilderness huddled in grey annihilation might awake and notice them in his own hotel were several smart so-called society people who emphasized the protest in him to the point of definite contempt overdressed the latest worldly novel under their arms they strutted the narrow pavements of their tiny world immensely pleased with themselves their vacuous minds expressed themselves in the slaying of their exclusive circle value being the element excluded the pettiness of their outlook hardly distressed him he was too familiar with it at home but their essential vulgarity their innate ugliness seemed more than usually offensive in the grandeur of its present setting into the mighty sands they took the latest london scandal gabbling it over even among the tombs and temples and it was to laugh the pains they sent wondering whom they might condescend to know never dreaming that they themselves were not worth knowing against the backdrop of the noble desert their titles seemed the cap and bells of clowns and henriot knowing some of them personally could not always escape their insipid company yet he was the gainer 
they little guessed how their commonness heightened contrast set mercilessly thus beside the strange eternal beauty of the sand occasionally the protest in his soul betrayed itself in words which of course they did not understand he is so clever isn't he and then having relieved his feelings he would comfort himself characteristically the desert has not noticed them the sand is not aware of their existence how should the sea take note of rubbish that lies above its tide-line for henriot drew near to its great shifting altars in an attitude of worship the wilderness made him kneel in heart its shining reaches led to the oldest temple in the world and every journey that he made was like a sacrament for him the desert was a consecrated place it was sacred and his tactful hosts knowing his peculiarities left their house open to him when he cared to come they lived upon the northern edge of the oasis and he was as free as though he were absolutely alone he blessed them he rejoiced that he had come little helouan accepted him the desert knew that he was there from his corner of the big dining-room he could see the other guests but his roving eye always returned to the figure of a solitary man who sat at an adjoining table and whose personality stirred his interest while affecting to look elsewhere he studied him as closely as might be there was something about the stranger that touched his curiosity a certain air of expectation that he wore but it was more than that it was anticipation apprehension in it somewhere the man was nervous uneasy his restless way of suddenly looking about him proved it henriot tried everyone else in the room as well but though his thoughts settled on others too he always came back to the figure of this solitary being opposite who ate his dinner as if afraid of being seen and glanced up sometimes as if fearful of being watched henriot's curiosity before he knew it became suspicion there was mystery here the table he noticed was laid for two is he an actor a priest of some strange religion an inquiry agent or just a crank was the thought that first occurred to him and the question suggested itself without amusement the impression of subterfuge and caution he conveyed left his observer unsatisfied the face was clean-shaven dark and strong thick hair straight yet bushy was slightly unkempt it was streaked with grey, and an unexpected mobility when he smiled ran over the features that he seemed to hold rigid by deliberate effort. The man was cut to no quite common measure. Henriot jumped to an intuitive conclusion. He's not here for pleasure or merely sightseeing. Something serious has brought him out to Egypt. For the face combined two ill-assorted qualities, an obstinate tenacity that might even mean brutality, and was certainly repulsive, yet with it an undecipherable dreaminess betrayed by lines of the mouth but above all in the very light blue eyes so rarely raised those eyes he felt had looked upon unusual things dreaminess was not an adequate description searching conveyed it better the true source of the queer impression remained elusive and hence perhaps the incongruous marriage in the face mobility laid upon a matter-of-fact foundation beneath the face showed conflict and henriot watching him felt decidedly intrigued i'd like to know that man and all about him his name he learned later was richard vance from birmingham a businessman but it was not the birmingham he wished to know it was the other cause of the elusive dreamy searching though facing one another at so short a distance their eyes however did not meet and this henriot well knew was a sure sign that he himself was also under observation richard vance from birmingham was equally taking careful note of felix henriot from london thus he could wait his time they would come together later an opportunity would certainly present itself the first links in a curious chain had already caught soon the chain would tighten pull as though by chance and bring their lives into one and the same circle wondering in particular for what kind of companion the second cover was laid henriot felt certain that their eventual coming together was inevitable he possessed this kind of divination from first impressions and not uncommonly it proved correct following instinct therefore he took no steps toward acquaintance and for several days owing to the fact that he dined frequently with his hosts he saw nothing more of richard vance the businessman from birmingham then one night coming home late from his friend's house he had passed along the great corridor and was actually a step or so into his bedroom 
when a drawling voice sounded close behind him. It was an unpleasant sound. It was very near him, too. I beg your pardon, but have you, by any chance, such a thing as a compass you could lend me? The voice was so close that he started. Vance stood within touching distance of his body. He had stolen up like a ghostly Arab, must have followed him, too, some little distance, for further down the passage the light of an open door, he had passed it on his way, showed where he came from. Eh, hey, I beg your pardon? A compass, did you say? He felt disconcerted for a moment. How short the man was, now that he saw him standing, broad and powerful, too. Henriot looked down upon his thick head of hair. The personality and voice repelled him. Possibly his face, caught unawares, betrayed this. "'Forgive my startling you,' said the other apologetically, while the softer expression danced in for a moment and disorganised the rigid set of the face. "'The soft carpet, you know. I'm afraid you didn't hear my tread.' "'I wondered,' he smiled again slightly at the nature of the request, "'if, by any chance, you had a pocket compass you could lend me.' "'Ah, a compass, yes. Please don't apologise. I believe I have one, if you'll wait a moment. Come in, won't you? I'll have a look.' The other thanked him, but waited in the passage. Henriot, it so happened, had a compass, and produced it after a moment's search. "'I am greatly indebted to you, if I may return it in the morning. You will forgive my disturbing you at such an hour. My own is broken, and I wanted uh, to find the true north.' Henriot stammered some reply, and the man was gone. It was all over in a minute. He locked his door and sat down in his chair to think. The little incident had upset him, though for the life of him he could not imagine why. It ought by rights to have been almost ludicrous, yet instead it was the exact reverse, half-threatening. Why should not a man want a compass? But again, why should he? And at midnight? The voice, the eyes, the near presence. What did they bring that set his nerves thus asking unusual questions? This strange impression that something grave was happening, something unearthly. How was it born exactly? The man's proximity came like a shock. It had made him start. He brought, thus the idea came unbidden to his mind, something with him that galvanised him quite absurdly, as fear does, or delight, or great wonder. There was a music in his voice too, a certain, well, he could only call it a lilt, that reminded him of plain song, intoning, chanting. Drawling was not the word at all. He tried to dismiss it as imagination, but it would not be dismissed. The disturbance in himself was caused by something not imaginary, but real. And then, for the first time, he discovered that the man had brought a faint, elusive suggestion of perfume with him, an aromatic odour that made him think of priests and churches. The ghost of it still lingered in the air. Ah, here then was the origin of the notion that his voice had chanted. It was surely the suggestion of incense. But incense, intoning, a compass to find the true north, at midnight in a desert hotel? A touch of uneasiness ran through the curiosity and excitement that he felt. And he undressed for bed. Confound my old imagination, he thought. What tricks it plays me. It'll keep me awake. But the questions, once started in his mind, continued. He must find explanation of one kind or another before he could lie down and sleep, and he found it at length in the stars. The man was an astronomer of sorts, possibly an astrologer into the bargain. Why not? The stars were wonderful above Helouan. Was there not an observatory on the Mokhtam Hills, too, where tourists could use the telescope on privileged days? He had it at last. He even stole out on his balcony to see if the stranger, perhaps, was looking through some wonderful apparatus at the heavens. Their rooms were on the same side, but the shuttered windows revealed no stooping figure with eyes glued to a telescope. The stars blinked in their many thousands down upon the silent desert. The night held neither sound nor movement. There was a cool breeze blowing across the Nile from the Libyan sands. It nipped, and he stepped back quickly into the room again. Drawing the mosquito curtains carefully about the bed, he put the light out and turned over to sleep. And sleep came quickly, contrary to his expectations, though it was a light and surface sleep. That last glimpse of the darkened desert lying beneath the Egyptian stars had touched him with some hand of awful power that ousted the first lesser excitement. 
It calmed and soothed him in one sense, yet in another, a sense he could not understand, it caught him in a net of deep, deep feelings whose mesh, while infinitely delicate, was utterly stupendous. His nerves, this deeper emotion left alone, it reached instead something infinite in him that mere nerves could neither deal with nor interpret. The soul awoke and whispered in him while his body slept. And the little foolish dreams that ran to and fro across this veil of surface sleep brought oddly tangled pictures of things quite tiny, and at the same time of others that were mighty beyond words. With these two counters nightmare played, they interwove. There was the figure of this dark-faced man with the compass measuring the sky to find the true north, and there were hints of giant presences that hovered just outside some curious outline that he traced upon the ground, copied in some nightmare fashion from the heavens. The excitement caused by his visitor's singular request mingled with the profounder sensations his final look at the stars and desert stirred. The two were somehow interrelated. Some hours later, before this surface sleep passed into genuine slumber, Henry awoke with an appalling feeling that the desert had come creeping into his room and now stared down upon him where he lay in bed. The wind was crying audibly about the walls outside. A faint, sharp tapping came against the window panes. He sprang instantly out of bed, not yet awake enough to feel actual alarm, yet with the nightmare touch still close enough to cause a sort of feverish, loose bewilderment. He switched the lights on. A moment later he knew the meaning of that curious tapping, for the rising wind was flinging tiny specks of sand against the glass. The idea that they had summoned him belonged, of course, to dream. He opened the window and stepped out onto the balcony. The stone was very cold under his bare feet. There was a wash of wind all over him. He saw the sheet of glimmering pale desert near and far, and something stung his skin below the eyes. The sand, he whispered. Again the sand, always the sand. Waking or sleeping, the sand is everywhere. Nothing but sand, sand, sand. He rubbed his eyes. It was like talking in his sleep, talking to someone who had questioned him just before he woke. But was he really properly awake? It seemed next day that he had dreamed it. Something enormous with rustling skirts of sand had just retreated far into the desert. Sand went with it, flowing, trailing, smothering the world. The wind died down. And Henriot went back to sleep, caught instantly away into unconsciousness, covered, blinded, swept over by this spreading thing of reddish-brown with the great grey face, whose being was colossal yet quite tiny, and whose fingers, wings, and eyes were countless as the stars. But all night long it watched and waited, rising to peer above the little balcony and sometimes entering the room and piling up beside his very pillow, he dreamed of sand. End of chapter 2 Four Weird Tales by Algernon Blackwood Sand Chapter 3 For some days Henriot saw little of the man who came from Birmingham, and pushed curiosity to a climax by asking for a compass in the middle of the night. For one thing, he was a good deal with his friends upon the other side of Helouan, and for another he slept several nights in the desert. He loved the gigantic peace the desert gave him. The world was forgotten there, and not the world merely, but all memory of it. Everything faded out. The soul turned inwards upon itself. An Arab boy and donkey took out sleeping bag, food, and water to the Wadi Hof, a desolate gorge about an hour eastward. It winds between cliffs whose summits rise some thousand feet above the sea. It opened suddenly, cut deep into the swaying world of level plateau and undulating hills. It moves about, too. He never found it in the same place twice, like an arm of the desert that shifted with the changing lights. Here he watched dawns and sunsets, slept through the midday heat, and enjoyed the unearthly colouring that swept day and night across huge horizons. In solitude the desert soaked down into him. At night the jackals cried in the darkness round his cautiously fed campfire, small because wood had to be carried, and in the daytime kites circled overhead to inspect him, and an occasional white vulture flapped across the blue. The weird desolation of this rocky valley, he thought, was like the scenery of the moon. He took no watch with him, and the arrival of the donkey-boy an hour after sunrise came almost from another planet, 
bringing things of time and common life out of some distant gulf where they had lain forgotten among lost ages the short hour of twilight brought too a bewitchment into the silence that was a little less than comfortable full light or darkness he could manage but this time of half things made him want to shut his eyes and hide its effect stepped over imagination the mind got lost he could not understand it for the cliffs and boulders of discoloured limestone shone then with an inward glow that signalled to the desert with veiled lanterns the misshapen hills carved by wind and rain into ominous outlines stirred and nodded in the morning light they retired into themselves asleep but at dusk the tide retreated they rose from the sea emerging naked threatening they ran together and joined shoulders the entire army of them and the glow of their sandy bodies self-luminous continued even beneath the stars only the moonlight drowned it for the moonrise over the Moktam hills brought a white grand loveliness that drenched the entire desert it drew a marvellous sweetness from the sand it shone across a world as yet unfinished whereon no life might show itself for ages yet to come he was alone then upon an empty star before the creation of things that breathed and moved what impressed him however more than everything else was the enormous vitality that rose out of all this apparent death there was no hint of the melancholy that belongs commonly to flatness the sadness of wide monotonous landscape was not here the endless repetition of sweeping vale and plateau brought infinity with measurable comprehension he grasped a definite meaning in the phrase world without end the desert had no end and no beginning it gave him a sense of eternal peace the silent peace that starfields know instead of subduing the soul with bewilderment it inspired with courage confidence hope through this sand which was the wreck of countless geological ages rushed life that was terrific and uplifting too huge to include melancholy too deep to betray itself in movement here was the stillness of eternity behind the spread grey mask of apparent death lay stores of accumulated life ready to break forth at any point in the desert he felt himself absolutely royal and this contrast of life veiling itself in death was a contradiction that somehow intoxicated the desert exhilaration never left him he was never alone a companionship of millions went with him and he felt the desert close as stars are close to one another or grains of sand it was the cumasin the hot wind bringing sand that drove him in with the feeling that these few days and nights had been immeasurable and that he had been away a thousand years he came back with the magic of the desert in his blood hotel life tasteless and insipid by comparison to human impressions thus he was fresh and vividly sensitive his being cleaned and sensitized by pure grandeur felt people for a time at any rate with an uncommon sharpness of receptive judgment he returned to a life somehow mean and meagre resuming insignificance with his dinner jacket out with the sand he had been regal now like a slave he strutted self-conscious and reduced but this imperial standard of the desert stayed a little time beside him its purity focusing judgment like a lens the speck of smaller emotions left it clear at first and as his eye wandered vaguely over the people assembled in the dining-room it was arrested with a vivid shock upon two figures at the little table facing him he had forgotten vance the birmingham man who sought the north at midnight with a pocket compass he now saw him again with an intuitive discernment entirely fresh before memory brought up her clouding associations some brilliance flashed a light upon him that man henriot thought might have come with me he would have understood and loved it but the thought was really this a moment's reflection spread it rather he belongs somewhere in the desert the desert brought him out here and again hidden swiftly behind it like a movement running below water what does he want with it what is the deeper motive he conceals for there is a deeper motive and it is concealed but it was the woman seated next to him who absorbed his attention really even while this thought flashed and went its way the empty chair was occupied at last unlike his first encounter with the man she looked straight at him their eyes met fully for several seconds there was steady mutual inspection while her penetrating stare intent without being rude passed searchingly all over his face it was disconcerting crumbling his bread he looked equally hard at her unable to turn away determined not to be the first to shift his gaze 
and when at length she lowered her eyes he felt that many things had happened as in a long period of intimate conversation her mind had judged him through and through questions and answers flashed they were no longer strangers for the rest of dinner though he was careful to avoid direct inspection he was aware that she felt his presence and was secretly speaking with him she asked questions beneath her breath the answers rose with the quickened pulses in his blood moreover she explained richard vance it was this woman's power that shone reflected in the man she was the one who knew the big unusual things vance merely echoed the rush of her vital personality this was the first impression that he got from the most striking curious face he had ever seen in a woman it remained very near to him all through the meal she had moved to his table it seemed she sat beside him their minds certainly knew contact from that moment it is never difficult to credit strangers with the qualities and knowledge that oneself craves for and no doubt henriot's active fancy went busily to work but none the less this thing remained and grew that this woman was aware of the hidden things of egypt he had always longed to know there was knowledge and guidance she could impart her soul was searching among ancient things her face brought the desert back into his thoughts and with it came the sand here was the flash the sight of her restored the peace and splendour he had left behind him in his desert camps the rest of course was what his imagination constructed upon this slender basis only not all of it was imagination now henriot knew little enough of women he had no pose of understanding them his experience was of the slightest the love and veneration felt for his own mother had set the entire sex upon the heights his affairs with women if so they may be called had been transient all but those of early youth which having never known the devastating test of fulfilment still remained ideal and superb there was unconscious humour in his attitude from a distance for he regarded women with wonder and respect as puzzles that sweetened but complicated life might even endanger it he was certainly not a marrying man but now as he felt the presence of this woman so deliberately possess him there came over him two clear strong messages each vivid with certainty one was that banal suggestion of familiarity claimed by lovers and the like he had often heard of it i have known that woman before i've met her ages ago somewhere she is strangely familiar to me and the other growing out of it almost have nothing to do with her she will bring you trouble and confusion avoid her and be warned in fact a distinct presentiment yet although henriot dismissed both impressions of having no shred of evidence to justify them the original clear judgment as he studied her extraordinary countenance persisted through all denials the familiarity and the presentiment remained there also remained this other an enormous imaginative leap that she could teach him egypt he watched her carefully in a sense fascinated he could only describe the face as black so dark it was with the darkness of great age elderly was the obvious natural word but elderly described the features only the expression of the face wore centuries nor was it merely the coal-black eyes that betrayed an ancient age-travelled soul behind them the entire presentiment mysteriously conveyed it this woman's heart knew long-forgotten things the thought kept beating up against him there were cheekbones oddly high that made him think involuntarily of the well-advertised pharaoh rameses a square deep jaw and an aquiline nose that gave the final touch of power for the power undeniably was there and while the general effect had a grimness in it there was neither harshness nor any forbidding touch about it there was an implacable sternness in the set of lips and jaw and most curiously of all the eyelids over the steady eyes of black were level as a ruler this level framing made the woman's stare remarkable beyond description henriot thought of an idol carved in stone stone hard and black with eyes that stared across the sand into a world of things non-human very far away forgotten of men the face was finely ugly this strange dark beauty flashed flame about it and as the way ever was with him henriot next fell to constructing the possible lives of herself and her companion though without much success imagination soon stopped dead she was not old enough to be vance's mother and assuredly she was not his wife his interest was more than merely piqued it was puzzled uncommonly what was the contrast that made the man seem beside her vile 
whence came too the impression that she exercised some strong authority though never directly exercised that held him at her mercy how did he guess that the man resented it yet did not dare oppose and that apparently acquiescing good-humouredly his will was deliberately held in abeyance and that he waited sulkily biding his time there was a furtiveness in every gesture and expression a hidden motive lurked in him unworthiness somewhere he was determined yet ashamed he watched her ceaselessly and with such uncanny closeness henriot imagined he divined all this he leaped to the guess that his expenses were being paid a good deal more was being paid besides she was a rich relation from whom he had expectations he was serving his seven years ashamed of his servitude ever calculating escape but perhaps no ordinary escape a faint shudder ran over him he drew in the reins of imagination of course the probabilities were that he was hopelessly astray one usually is on such occasions but this time it so happened he was singularly right before one thing only his ready invention stopped every time this vileness this notion of unworthiness in vance could not be negative merely a man with that face was no inactive weakling the motive he was at such pains to conceal betraying its existence by that very fact moved surely towards aggressive action disguised it never slept vance was sharply on the alert he had a plan deep out of sight and henriot remembered how the man's soft approach along the carpeted corridor had made him start he recalled the quasi-shock it gave him he thought again of the feeling of discomfort he had experienced next his eager fancy sought to plumb the business these two had together in egypt in the desert for the desert he felt convinced had brought them out but here though he constructed numerous explanations another barrier stopped him because he knew this woman was in touch with that aspect of ancient egypt he himself had ever sought in vain and not merely with stones the sand had buried so deep but with the meanings they once represented buried so utterly by the sands of later thought and here being ignorant he found no clue that could lead to any satisfactory result for he possessed no knowledge that might guide him he floundered until fate helped him and the instant fate helped him the warning and presentiment he had dismissed as fanciful became real again he hesitated caution acted he would think twice before taking steps to form acquaintance better not thought whispered better leave them alone this queer couple they're after things that won't do you any good this idea of mischief almost of danger in their purposes was oddly insistent for what could possibly convey it but while he hesitated fate who sent the warning pushed him at the same time into the circle of their lives at first tentatively he might still have escaped but soon urgently curiosity led him inexorably towards the end end of chapter three of sand